Well, we are incredibly excited about this Power Over series, and we're celebrating Easter in a couple weeks. We're starting the series next week. Can't tell you what Easter is all about, but it's kind of a big deal, so you should be here. And uh, Easter itself and worshiping together is a big deal, but there's a lot going on at Alive right now. You heard about worship on the patio or praise on the patio. We're pumped about that. It's also warmer weather. I'm not a farmer's almanac, but I think it's permanent. Like, I think it's going to stay for a while. And if you need warm weather clothing, you can go to the exchange. This is a shameless plug, and I'll tell you why. It is open today. Our incredible volunteers and people who staff it are there today. You can go there, get some warm weather clothing. Here's the reason why. We're proud of our resale store, but we're really proud of why it exists. It's not just there to get you good clothing or good items for your home. It's there to support Project 20. And we're not just saying, hey, we should do a bunch of Christ-centered community stuff. We're actually putting all of our resources towards this. We're so excited about Project 20 and what it means for our community. So stop by, check it out, see the volunteers, just see what it looks like. You don't have to buy anything, just hang out. It's a great time. Uh, a couple more things that are taking place in our community that we're pumped about that we'll talk about in a couple minutes. But before we do that, I want to pray. Would you pray with me? Father, we are incredibly grateful to be here this morning. God, as we join in from from the places that we find ourselves today, whether it's online or the chapel or auditorium, Pelzer, Pleasant View, God, wherever we find ourselves, we count it an honor to worship you. And we count it an honor to sit at your feet and be taught, to be uh, changed, to be transformed. And and we want that. Individually, God, we want that. As a group, we want to look more like you. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us and shape us, that your word would, uh, would challenge us. And that you would help us to understand the kind of life we are called to live and we're invited to live. We give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this Once Upon a Time series has been asking us some really good questions from the idea of story. And so we've been talking about what would a a story worth living look like? If your life is a story and it's being written, it's being written by your pen, by your hand, or it's being written even by God, what would it look like? So we asked the question, you know, is this the kind of life I want to be living? And then Pastor Tom messed us up last week by changing that question, saying not only is this the kind of life you want to be living, but if there is a great creator, author, God out there who's writing your story, is this the kind of of story that God wants you to be living? Is this the kind of story that you feel like he is looking at saying, that's why I made you, yes, that's it? And if not, then there's some things we can do to kind of get on track, but, but we really need to understand our life from this perspective. And so we talked about some of the elements of a great story. And they, they all share these elements. And we talked about this compelling vision. It's, it's the why, right? Like it's the reason the characters get out of bed in the morning or go on this epic journey. And it's the vision for a life that's worth living. It's compelling. And then we talked about relentless conviction. And, and this is this, just this gut sense of this is what I have to do. This is the mountain I'm going to climb, but this is also the way in which I've got to do it. It's our values, right? It's how we get to this resolution in the story. We talked about courageous action, There's no good story out there that doesn't require the main character or characters to choose something difficult, to to just take courage and take action. The best stories have it. And then anointed authority. And this is that that moment in the story where the character says, you know what? If this thing is going to get done, it's got to be me. It's on my shoulders. And this almost otherworldly anointing or force just empowers the character to do something worth doing. And then confident humility. We talked about the fact that the best characters and stories have this weird blend. It's kind of hard to find. You don't see it a lot. But they're, they're not only confident people, but they're also humble people. The kind of people you want to be around, the kind of people you want to follow. And then strategic relationships. So it's usually not all about one person. The best stories involve a team. And they involve a team of people who pour into each other's lives and invest in each other's lives for the greater good. 
And these are elements of the story that I hope are part of your life, that I hope are part of your daily action and your faith. So I want you to think about what's your favorite epic story. Just kind of think about it right now, movie, book, whatever, wherever it comes from. What's your favorite epic story? For some of us, the epic story is this uh, band of, of people who are moving towards this big thing of lava trying to drop a scary, dangerous ring into it, right? Any, any fans of that story out there? We got some fans, good. For others of you, maybe there's just a series of movies where these heroes with incredible powers are trying to save the human race and themselves, right? Any people out there like that? A few, okay. How about for some of you guys, this uh, coming-of-age tale of magical wizards who are trying to figure out how to play broom soccer and are sad about their uniforms and I don't know, I didn't keep up with that one a whole lot, so I don't know if I just offended everybody in that genre, but is anybody a fan of that one? A few? Okay, good, good. See, the best stories have these common elements that you're aware of. There's a reason you'll sit with your eyes glued for hours and hours and hours to take these particular stories in, because there's something worth watching going on. And we want lives like that. That's why we're obsessed with those stories. We want to be a part of a grand story. And it's a temptation almost to wonder whether that's true with your own life and almost maybe be afraid that it's not going to happen for you. And yet we, are, we have this conviction that we were made for something big, for something important. There's another element that won't make our list, but it's actually a part of every single story. And in, in order to understand the last element that does make our list, we've got to talk about this thing. Every good story worth watching has a conflict. It's got a problem. It's got a challenger. It's got a series of challenges or conflicts or problems. And if we were to actually sit and interview every single one of you at a live, we would actually hear a story after story after story kind of tale of challenges and conflicts and problems because your story, the one worth living, the one that you're a part of, also has conflict. And those conflicts help define who you are. And, and anybody who's been through conflict can tell you there's a statement that, that is true whether you like it or not. And it's this statement. It's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. The characters of a story are confronted by something they did not choose, they do not want, they don't invite into their lives, and yet it's there. And what matters most is not that it's there, it matters how they respond to it. The same is true for us. And for some of us, our challenges are really, really big. The biggest ones. People in our congregation are facing things like the loss of a loved one. They're facing things like disease or a diagnosis. They're facing things like financial collapse. Facing things like depression or broken relationships. What's more common than that, though, are, are things that maybe don't even measure quite as big on the scale. Things like loneliness, disappointment, discouragement, not feeling valued, just feeling kind of malaise or apathy. And in either situation, whether it's massive on this scale or it's smaller, what matters most in that moment is how you react to it. And on a daily basis, if we're reacting every single day to these things, it can be a really, really big challenge. And the biggest challenge that I've found in my life, whether it's a huge thing or a small thing, is not the challenge itself. It's actually resisting the temptation to give up. It's resisting the temptation to quit. And for some of you, the idea of giving up on life maybe sounds a little too dramatic. For others, maybe it doesn't. Maybe that's exactly where you're tempted to be right now. For others of us, giving up in a moment like that doesn't look like giving up on life. It looks a little bit more subtle. 
so if there's a relationship where there's conflict and I'm kind of tired of it and I'm kind of broken, giving up just looks like pulling back a little bit. Maybe if my family is exhausting and it's frustrating having conflict, maybe I just don't give trust or I don't give of myself like I used to. Maybe if at work I'm disappointed, I just realize, you know what, this isn't going to work out. And rather than doing my best, I'm just going to give as much effort as I have. And so for some of us, giving up, succumbing to the challenge is this subtle little shift in our soul, but it eats at us. Because just because we made that decision doesn't mean we like that decision and doesn't mean we want to live with the consequences. The challenge of not giving up is one of the things that faces every single great character. And so when I say to you in the midst of your challenge, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters, maybe you feel like me, which is, please don't say that to my face right now. I really don't want that from you right now. It feels a little bit like a slap in the face right now. Kinds of quotes like that have been shared a million times. And the reason why is because there's substance to it. There's something that matters. It resonates with you. But I actually think we can do better than that quote. I think it's true, but I think we can do better. I think our faith offers us something better than how you react to it is what matters most. Like, okay, but how should I react to it? And how am I going to have the energy to do it on a random Tuesday? This quote is attributed to a guy named Epictetus. Can you guys say Epictetus with me? You guys did awesome. I had to practice that a million times. Stoic philosopher, Epictetus went from slave servant to uh, a sage, went from a guy who had a really, really difficult life and was challenged by so many things he did not invite to someone who was sought out for his wisdom. And he came up with this phrase to try to help himself cope with life. And then he started to share it. And it makes a ton of sense, right? Because eventually what you find in Epictetus' life is he actually has a couple maxims he lives by. The first one of his maxims is this. Basically, if you don't want to be disappointed in life, you should lower your expectations because the problem with life is that it's going to keep getting hard and that's not your issue. Your issue is that you expected it not to be. So just lower your expectations a little bit. Second maxim is this. If life is hard, just try not to feel anything about it. Just disconnect and disengage and cut off your emotions and just be kind of numb and that will help. And if I try to do my life without my faith, those things are some of the wisest things I've ever heard. Because if I'm honest, I think that might help me a little bit. The problem is I don't want to do those things. I want to live life to the full like we've been talking about. And so how would I as a person living in a world that faces constant challenge and a story worth living live life in such a way that I don't have to cut off my emotions or my attachments and I don't have to lower my expectations and I can actually live a compelling story. I can't follow Epictetus there. I need something better. To have a compelling vision, relentless conviction, courageous action, anointed authority, confident humility, strategic relationships, and do it day after day after day in the midst of challenge, I need something outside of myself. There's a verse that Paul writes in, in a book called Romans to a church in the capital city of Rome, struggling and facing challenge and trying to be faithful. I've overlooked this verse so many times, but not anymore. Paul says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the way he writes that is kind of interesting. He says, and we know, and I'm like, I'm not sure I do, Paul, but thanks for being confident in me. But he says it like you can affirm it, like you can own it. And we know, right, everybody, 
That in all things, every single thing, your best day and your worst day and everything in between, God is not only aware, he's not only intimately involved, he's actually working out every single thing, almost like he's the editor and you're the author. And you're writing and he's like, okay, that's interesting. I'm gonna erase that part and do it again. Like, ah, let's see where you're trying to go there. I have a better idea. He's working all things to your good. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to like everything that happens. It doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing all the time, but God is intimately and actively involved in bringing every circumstance of your life to his desired outcome and your good. Why? Because you're loving and trusting him, and you're called according to his purpose. There isn't just a resolve coming where the plot actually ends well. It actually involves your life. You're, you're necessarily included in this plot. Therefore, he's working out all things for your good. Now, if Epictetus was invited into that awareness of life, maybe he would change his maxims. Maybe he could put his trust in something bigger than in his ability to cut things off and instead say, if that were true, how would that change my life and my story? This verse helps us understand that actually there's hope in the world in our challenge. And there's actually a way in which we can have the most audacious hope in the world that not just can we get through challenges, but those challenges are actually somehow good for us and getting us where God wants us to go. The kind of hope we really shouldn't have on our own, but do with God. This brings us to our last element of a good story. And it's two words, patient endurance, patient endurance. Now, if you're like me, those two words are like a sardine and olive sandwich. Have you ever had one of those? Please say you haven't. That's disgusting. I haven't either. You know why? Because I don't like sardines and I don't like olives. And putting them together won't make it any better. Patience is not my favorite thing. Endurance is also not my favorite thing. Put them together, still don't like them. But, but here's the definition. Patient endurance is our commitment, our commitment, to cooperate with God as he brings about his desired outcome, as he works out all things for the good of those who love him. Our commitment to cooperate with God as he brings about his desired outcome. If you pay attention to scripture, this idea is from cover to cover. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. The patient endurance that, that God's trying to teach us is truly in every story. So Jesus is talking one time to his disciples and he says this phrase, he says, in this world you'll have trouble. And I imagine in that moment, no one's surprised by that phrase, but everybody's got their hand up saying amen. In this world you'll have trouble. Yep, preach it, Jesus. I know all about that. None of us are surprised that in this world you'll have trouble. But then he finishes this sentence and says, but take heart, I have overcome the world and all of its trouble. Now, keep in mind, this is before Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the grave. So the people hearing this that day had to decide if they could trust Jesus and believe him that he really had overcome the world or if this was just a crazy man. Another time, he's talking to his followers and some people were gathered around and they were listening in on the conversation. He says, listen, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy and again, everyone's picturing the thief in their mind, whether it's a thief down the road for real or the thief as in the enemy Satan or the thief as in Rome or the thief as in the religious leaders who are taxing them or keeping things from them. They're like, yeah, amen, the thief, whoever that is, he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. I don't need imagination to know what that's like. That's my life, preacher, yeah. And then Jesus said, but 
I've come that you can have an abundant, full life, life to the full. Now, that part takes a little bit of creative imagination. What would that look like? A life that's no longer defined by steal, kill, and destroy. I want to know about that. And this is why patient endurance is so important. Because if we know so well the steal, kill, destroy, but we want to know so well the fullness of life, we have to recognize we live in a tension right now. And the tension is not solved on our power. It's solved on Christ's power and his timing. And so Jesus is saying, there's a tension you're going to live in right now between steal, kill, and destroy, which is where you were stuck without Jesus. It's all you knew and it's all you would know. It's all Epictetus would have understood about life is steal, kill, and destroy. But I'm bringing about a new reality you can start to lean into. You won't know it fully and you won't know it without challenge, but you can lean into it. One day you'll know it fully and it will be the abundant life, life to the full. Somewhere somebody may have told you that if you raise your hands high enough and you sing and you read your Bible and you're a good Christian, this part will go away, steal, kill, and destroy. But you know better than that. That's not true. You live in a world that's not your final home, not your final destination, where still kill and destroy is still part of our reality. And making it through the daily life and the grind of faith sometimes requires a patient endurance to get through still kill and destroy so we can lean into abundant life. Trusting that God eventually will shape us into the kind of people so that when the time is right, we understand how this all works. An abundant life is ours. Now, you can start to experience that now. Look around the room and talk to people as you leave, and you'll see people whose eyes have life in them, abundant life even, because they're experiencing this kind of story with Christ. So patient endurance is our commitment to cooperate with God through every challenge of steal, kill, and destroy as he brings about his desired outcome of the abundant life in your life. And if we're going to have patient endurance, I have some bad news for you. It's going to take almost a complete rewiring of who we are. Here's how I know this. I'm allergic to everything related to patient endurance, and you are too. In fact, if you examine your life, you'll find that almost everything within your power is being leveraged to keep you from having to be patient and endure anything. All you have to do is watch commercials Look at your phone, check out the businesses that are booming. All of them are intended to save you from having to be patient and endure anything. It's true, right? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but what I'm saying is that stuff is discipling you and shaping you into a person that has no understanding of patience or endurance. And yet God is saying, just so you understand, the story I'm writing for you will require a muscle that you haven't worked out in a while. And I'd like you to start working on it. And not only is it a good idea, it's going to be part of shaping you for my abundant life. There's an old motto I used to hear, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So I started thinking about how, if we're honest, that actually goes now. Right? So I'll just talk about it like it's my life, and, and maybe you can listen in a little bit. So when the going gets tough, there's got to be a cheat code. When the going gets tough, I'll just change teams or coaches or jobs or churches or friendships. When the going gets tough, it's probably their fault. 
I like that one. When the going gets tough, I'll distract myself and escape. When the going gets tough, I'll take that substance to change the state of my mind so I don't have to think about it. When the going gets tough, I'll take control of this myself. When the going gets tough, maybe God isn't watching. What do I do next? And I don't, I don't really want to be a downer, but I, what I really hope you understand about what I'm trying to say is that we have in front of us challenges in our lives, and one of the greatest challenges is that we are not equipped for them. And God is trying through his scripture, through his word, through his faithful followers to equip us for the life that we're facing. And he desperately wants us to build patient endurance into our understanding and into our life. So how? There's a passage that the writer of Hebrews gives us that has this incredible metaphor in it. And it's so powerful, and it's this picture of a race. And so I want to read through this, and I want to talk about it a little bit, and then I want to actually get to some practicalities for how you can walk out and run this race. So therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So just a few things you see in this passage. First, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. In this passage, the writer's already told us that there are so many faithful people who have come before us. They're people who took this hope of the gospel and they lived it out well and they're mostly gone and past and yet they're cheering us on. I don't know where, I don't know how. I just believe that there's something true about that. There's a great cloud of witness who've, who've run the race, who are cheering you on as you run it. So the second thing is we've got to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So I just want you to think for a second. What is it that hinders you from running a race that God has marked out for you? What obstacles do you find in your way today? Because they could look a million different ways, but what are they? And, and what are the sins that are entangling you, that are tripping you up? We spend a lot of time thinking, I did bad, therefore I am bad, therefore God doesn't love me. But what if we got past that a little bit and just said, okay, God's aware of my sin. He's clearly understanding that it's tangling me up. And if I were to just like be able to get rid of it, what would that be like? And what would it be that I would throw off to the side and say, I don't have time for you anymore. I'm trying to run a race. The writer says, just, just untangle yourself from it. God will give you the power. It'll help you do that. And then if we run, we're going to have to run with perseverance. Apparently, the race that's marked out for us, that God already knows the distance of, is fairly long and arduous. And it's going to take perseverance, this patient endurance that we're talking about. And we don't know much about that, so we need to know a little bit more about that. And then fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, meaning he's the pace setter. He's the one that ran this race already. He knows every step of it. He knows every single inch of it. And not only has he run it, he's actually finished it. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father, meaning his part of it's done. And yet he sends the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to run with us, to be with us. And that's incredibly comforting to me. And so we get to run this race and we understand that there's got to be something about patient endurance. And so I wanted to show you a couple pictures of a race that this does not remind me of. Because in my head growing up, I kept thinking about this race and the pictures that came to mind were like this. Sun's coming up, the grass is beautiful, the, the track is clear, and that guy's probably having a great time. Like, truly, he's just having a blast. But that doesn't look anything like my race, right? 
Here's another picture I want to show you of the race that it's not. That one. I can't see her face, but I imagine she's smiling so big. And she's got like perfect teeth and she's just so excited to be running. And like, look at that. It's just beautiful scenery and like, it's just great. There's even a little flare from the camera. I don't know how they do that. That's cool. That's not my life. Can I show you some pictures of the race that I'm imagining in my head of my race? That's a mud run. That's real fire. I'm in there somewhere. And it's not just fire on the sides. It looks like it's just on the sides and you just run through a a fire tunnel. No, there's ditches in between and there's fire in between those. So you're running and jumping through mud and falling and jumping around fire. It's super hazardous. They make you sign a waiver. It's real dumb. Doesn't that feel more like your race? Let me show you another one. Yeah, okay, there. That's a dumpster. That's weird. Uh, They make you get in it at the other end down here, and then you you get out on, how do I do that? There it is. Uh, In between is ice water. So water with all kinds of ice. It's very cold. And when you get in there, you have a heart attack, and you die for a second, and then you come out on the other side, and when you get out, you're so excited to get out, but you realize nothing works anymore. So you're trying to climb out, which is not a hard task when your body's working, but you're more like just flopping onto this ladder on the other side, and then you get out and you realize you have to run after that. That was one of my favorite parts, just watching other people, right? Because they just start to run and... Doesn't that feel more like your race sometimes? I'm going to show you another one. Yeah, this is the finish line. Uh, The finish line is a little bit to the left, and if you'll notice, that's me uh, not having a great time, and right behind me is Pastor Tom also not having a great time. And I want to tell you this, he was the one who tricked me into doing this. Some context. One time in my life before this, I had intentionally run more than two miles. One time. (laughs) The reason why is because I played sports growing up. And I knew the worst part of sports is running. Everything else was great. And so I made it my mission to never purposely run longer than I had to. And then Pastor Tom, in the way he does, was like, hey, I want you to do this thing with me. It's a team of us. You'll sign up. We'll do it. And I'm like, okay, cool. And then I got the the data about it. He's like, it's a mud run. It's about 12 miles long. And I threw up right there. (laughs) Like, I'm out. There's 25 obstacles. None of them are good. They're all designed to hurt you. This last one right here, right before the finish line, is electrical, electrical lines. And so you just got wet and muddy and you're getting near the finish line and you're getting real pumped up because the last ounce of adrenaline you didn't know was there kicks in and you're like, yes. So you're running and I'm sprinting and I jump and right after this picture, what happened is I got hit by a really powerful one. The next thing I knew, I lifted my head out of the mud and I was facing the opposite direction. Finish line was behind me. What happened? I have no idea. So I get up and I run the rest of the race. And the reason I tell you this about this race is that I learned a ton about it. Here are some lessons I learned from this race. The first race I showed you is neat and clean. The second one's not at all. First race is a clearly marked out path. The second one's a little bit sketchy. First race has a clear beginning, mile markers, and an end point. Second race, I was trying to find any markers because I just wanted to know how close I was to being done. First race is flat and fairly clear. The second has obstacles, hills, ice, fire. First race can be accomplished pretty easily on one's own. The second one is almost impossible by yourself. 
First race is about finish time. Second race is just about finishing, alive. First race, race, the finish line is celebrated with dignity. Second race, the finish line hurts you. But Tough Mudder taught me life lessons. It taught me that even though I knew a ton of the obstacles in my life were difficult, I could get past them. It taught me that even though I'd never run a whole lot of time, if I trained and if I trained with people who knew what they were doing and if I spent time doing crazy things like running a long time and jumping in Hartwell when it's like 45 degrees and running up and down that dike in Clemson that makes you want to die after you run up and down it. But doing that with a team, I was able to be encouraged beyond what my own motivation could muster. And when I was on that race, it really mattered that I had done that with the team because there was something about the trust I had built on those random Saturdays that, that came into play during this big race. I learned you'll never finish a race if you're not complete, or if you'll never finish a race if you're not committed to completing it, because there's always an out for you if you agree on it. If you say by mile three, if my calf is cramping, I'm done, you're gonna be done. If you say if I face an obstacle that's scary, I'm gonna be out, you'll be out for sure. You've got to have this mindset you're committed to finish no matter what. Most importantly, I learned that if I died of hypothermia or a heart attack, I was going to heaven, so I'd be okay. <laughs> when I finished the race, there were people cheering, and some of them had no idea because they were just there. They didn't do the race. They had no idea how cold I was, how sore I was, how much I hated the decision I had made a few hours before. They had no idea how much I wanted to quit. There were other ones who had run the race. They knew exactly what I felt. When I finished, I'm telling you what, I didn't go and just sit in a car somewhere and get warm. I actually stood by the finish line and cheered for people. Because as they finished, I know exactly what they had, were feeling and what they had been through. I can tell you how loud I got because I felt every step they were taking. There was a cloud of witnesses around that race, the ones who really knew what it had cost to finish, and their cheers mattered so much. If you were going to ask me about running a, a, a mud race and about should I do it or should I not, I'd tell you a few things. First this. Yes, you should do it. And if I can do it, you can do it. I promise you. If I can do it, you can do it. Second thing I would tell you, don't try to do it alone. Do it as a team. It's so much better to do this kind of thing with a team. Third thing, it'll change you. It'll change the people you run with. I would tell you those three, three things over and over again. And as I told you those three things, I would get more and more excited and I would actually become almost evangelistic about it. I would almost start to tell you with so much excitement and exuberance, you should do it. And if you told me in the lobby, I think I'm gonna sign up, you wanna join me? I might join you, I'm that crazy. I ended up doing two more of these things. And I made very bad mistakes both times. I invited people younger than me. <laughs> yeah, they destroyed me. They didn't always wait for me like I waited for other people. It was sad, but I would do it again. There's a principle in that race, the real race that life really looks like that applies to this Hebrews passage. Do you hear it already? He's run it so you can run it. Jesus has finished this race and if he can do it, and he has, he says you can do it. And guess what? Not only has he done it, other people have done it. And they finished the race in such a way that not only did they take the baton from Jesus, they kept on running it and running it generation by generation until you got to a point in your life. Let me tell you about this. Someone found you and said to you, I want to tell you about how your life fits into this big story and about the author of this story, Jesus. Someone did that for me. The message made it all the way to me. And that team keeps on running. 
and now you're a part of it. And as you run that race, as you get up on a random Tuesday and face the obstacle that's coming your way with patient endurance because Jesus is your hope, you have an opportunity to not just make it through your day, but as people are watching you, they will understand something massive about life in their own way. They'll be encouraged by you. They'll be pointed to the right things in your life. They'll watch you. It'll make a difference. It's an imperfect team, but it's a good team. God intends for us to live a compelling story that overcomes challenges and prepares us for a chapter far beyond our own, that abundant life forever. And I wish I had time to show you chapter 13 right after that race metaphor. Paul starts to tell us how it's going to look in our daily life to actually run this race with patient endurance. And it's almost surprising, but it makes so much sense. He doesn't really talk about big, momentous experiences. He talks about little things. And the little things become the big things when you understand how a life stacks up. So he says, have patient endurance in this way. Verse 1, keep loving each other as brothers and sisters. Every day, just wake up and keep loving your fellow Christians as brothers and sisters. Verse 2, show hospitality to strangers. Verse 3, visit those in prison or being mistreated for their faith. Verse 4, honor marriages. Everybody, not just the ones in the marriage, everybody honor marriages. Verse 5, don't fall in love, in love with money, but be content in what you ha- you've got. Verse 6, don't be afraid of people who threaten you. Verse 7, int- imitate Christians whose lives look like Jesus. Verse 9, don't get distracted by weird teaching. Did you guys know there's weird teaching all over the place right now? And it points to almost everything except for Jesus. Sometimes it just uses Jesus as a mechanism to get their point across. Don't, don't pay attention to that. Pay attention to Jesus. Paul says, do that. That's how you have patient endurance. Remember, this world is not your ultimate home. In verse 14, verse 15, worship Jesus and share him with people. Verse 16, do good to others and share with them. Verse 17, honor leaders who are honorable. Verse 18, pray for those serving the mission of God. Those are the things that on a random Tuesday, Thursday, whatever else it is, take patient endurance and help you live a compelling life that helps you run the race. Just basic things empowered by Christ. Let me ease a burden for you today. If you're running the race and you're a little tired and you feel like no one told you there was going to be fire and ice and you're a little exhausted and the challenge before you is actually tempting you to quit a little bit, you're in really good company. Why does the Bible keep telling us to have patient endurance? Because the Bible knows we're going to need it. Because part of being human, part of running the race after Jesus is understanding that You're going to need patient endurance, and he's got to give you that gift. So let me share with you a few words. These these words are are verses written, and they would have actually been shared the first time they were ever shared. They would have been handed to somebody, and somebody would have stood up, and they would have read them out loud to people like you listening. People like you who are trying to have patient endurance in your daily walk with God, and, and they would have hit your ears, and I hope they feel... Like they're helpful. So this is in Galatians chapter 6, 9 through 10. Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Romans 5, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Revelation 21, the writer John says, hey, 
Just so you know, there's a time coming where patient endurance will no longer be necessary. It will have paid itself off, and you'll experience something you've never experienced before. Chapter 21 of Revelation, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man, and he will live with them. This will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, the one who finished the race, said, I am making everything new. And he said, write these things down. These are worthy, are trustworthy and true. There's a time coming where the race will be completed. And the faithful runner will experience the fullness of life in a way we never have before. And it will take patient endurance. And I want to suggest one more thing it might take. In your seats, you should have a card that looks a little bit like this. And I want you to take this card, and this week I just want you to do two things. I want you to think of a few people, one, two, three people, who need to know about the Jesus that you serve. And I want you to, to write those people's names down. Put this somewhere you're going to see it and pray for them. And the next step might be that you invite them to an Easter service. It might just be that you continue to pray for them, and you ask God that he would meet them somewhere in their, in their life. And it might just be that he wants to introduce himself to them through you like someone did for you. Take this card, write it down, pray about it. This might be your leg of the race. Let me pray for us. Father, we are counted an honor to worship you today. And we're grateful that you preserved your word for us. Thank you for the testimony of so many finishers of the race who have gone on before us. God, thank you for the way you ran the race. I don't know what the challenges in this room are, God, but you do. And so I pray that you would speak hope to every single person here facing something that makes them want to quit. God, I pray that if there's people here who are running the race and it really, it really looks like that first set of pictures, it's smooth and the sun's out and it's great, I pray you would give them eyes to see people who are struggling and a heart of compassion for those people. And we would encourage those people. And God, we ask that as we lean into this Easter experience, God, that you would be lifted up, that your name would be lifted up, God, that you would be glorified in our lives. We love you. We trust you. Help us have patient endurance today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.